welcome to She Plus Me, a podcast that inspires and celebrates personal and professional growth. I'll be your host, Nora Bade, founder of She Plus Me, an educational lifestyle brand. After going through my own wild journey of discovering my most authentic self through mind, body, and soul, I've been discovering what it takes to find your passion and to live your most authentic life. This is the place to be to dig into real and raw conversations with radiant souls from everything natural beauty to holistic health, deep healing, personal growth, and building a purposeful life. Every single one of us has the ability to build extraordinary lives, and this podcast is going to help you get there. Welcome back to another episode of She Plus Me, and our next guest really needs no introduction if you are a local listener. But if you are not, I'm excited to introduce Arielle Goff. Arielle is a champion for social equity and an active member who contributes to growth of women and girls in our community. She is also the co-founder of Bailey, a vegan and hypoallergenic fragrance that smells amazing. Welcome, Arielle. Hi, Nora. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you because you've been that figure in my life that has always just existed. (laughs) That's so sweet of you. Yes, I remember we went to high school together. Yes. (laughs) That's where it all started. So interesting to see how we've both grown and figured out our own path in our own way. Mm-hmm. It's been quite the journey, hasn't it? Sure has. I know you're so active in the community and you're very involved in quality, uh, giving back to women and females in the community. And you also are a female founder of a really cool fragrance that's amazing in the sense that it's hypoallergenic, it's all natural, it's vegan, and it smells good. So what more could you really ask for? (laughs) (laughs) So I, I would love to just dive right into your journey and explore how you've grown up and where you ended up today. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for the opportunity to talk about this. I think as women, it's so important that we do take the time to explore our journeys because I know for me, I find that I just go through life and people will say, what did you do yesterday? Or what did you do on the weekend? And I can't even remember that. So imagine trying (laughs) to remember your whole life story. So thank you for this. I would start off by saying that I grew up in an African Nova Scotian community. Um, It's called Upper Hammonds Plains. And growing up, I was acutely aware of my history and my heritage. So my ancestors came here after the War of 1812 as refugees. They were called Black refugees. And they were promised land in a better life by the British. But unfortunately, when they got here, it was not what they expected. Um, The land that they were given, you couldn't cultivate on it, you couldn't build houses on it. Because of racism and discrimination, they were excluded from workplaces, all public spaces. And um, again, because of that persistent discrimination, they weren't able to get a quality education or find proper employment. So of course, all of those challenges had ramifications for not only themselves, but for their families and even for generations up until today. So for me, I understood the challenges that my ancestors had gone through when they first arrived to Nova Scotia. So I've always felt this sense of one groundedness in their story, but also a need to give back and a desire to do better for myself because I know they struggled for for me and for the opportunities that I'm able to have today. So that's that's where I got my start. It's within the African Nova Scotian community. Uh, My mom has been my rock and she she ensured that I was involved in everything at school or and also in the community. It started volunteering at my church and in my community center as well. And then from there, I was able to get involved at school on student council. And I was able to see that if you just take action, you can actually make positive change happen. 100%. And uh, I think it's so often we feel like our actions won't contribute to anything or it might be very minuscule in the grander scheme of things. And uh, I think that alone takes a lot of courage and motivation to even put the effort and acknowledge that. But I want to go back uh, for a quick second here and talk about, because I know you talked about your history. So in your experience, how have you felt the ramifications of being um, from the African Canadian community here locally? And like, how how has that played a factor in your day-to-day life? Some people can attest that is 
it's impacted them quite tremendously while others might feel like it hasn't really impacted them. So what's your journey on that? Mm -hmm. Great question. For me growing up, I would say that I think because I had such supportive parents, I like to say that I grew up in a bubble where I felt like I could do anything, which is absolutely wonderful as a child. So you're going out, you're facing the world, you're doing what you can do to, you know, make a difference and achieve what you want to achieve. But I did notice that, for example, growing up, I was the only person of color or black person in my class from grade, I'd say, primary to 12. So as a kid, you're looking around in the classroom, you're thinking, hmm, you know, there's no one that looks like me. And it wasn't until grade 12 that I had a black teacher. So you're going through 12 years, almost 13 years of education without seeing that someone that looks like you in a position of power or authority. So I think those are the things for me that stood out. Um, But at the same time, um, I think now that I'm older and I'm playing a larger role in society, I see that people had it so much worse than I did. So I always hear stories of, of course, being bullied or being excluded from school activities, teachers looking down on you, giving you poorer grades. We see currently, if you even look at the data, you see that African Nova Scotian kids, their outcomes are lower than those of the average student in the school system right now. Um, we also talk about street checks, which is a big thing here in Nova Scotia. Of course, they've now been banned, but we see particularly young Black men being stopped more frequently than other people on the street. And we see over criminalization of Black men and Black women in the criminal justice system, there's a higher representation of Black people there. So these are just a whole host of issues that are still present today. I'd say that um, in terms of my childhood, again, I was blessed to have parents who were so supportive and who were advocates for me and my education and what I wanted to do. Um, but at the same time, for others, it was so much worse. I love the fact that you brought up growing up in just a community that has no representation of your background and your history. And for some people, like that's that's a mindset that's really tough to kind of assimilate to. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you use to kind of facilitate that mindset of just acceptance and also just like holding true to yourself? Because for many, I know for myself included, like that was something, you know, of just um, the environment and so many different aspects. I found that it was really hard for me to identify myself, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. you feel like you kind of have to conform to like who you're surrounded by or perhaps uh, giving and taking on some morales or beliefs or what you want your life to represent in essence, really. Um, so I find that sometimes it's really hard to grasp as to, I guess, your roots and growing up and that sort of thing. So how is that for you? Yeah, it's that it's it is tough. I won't downplay it because when you are whether you're in the classroom or when you're out in the community and you're not surrounded by your culture or you're not mm-hmm. learning about your culture or it's not seen as something to be proud of, then it can be challenging especially when you're younger. But I know for me growing up in the community that I did, there was this sense of pride that looking back at our history and our heritage there's such a resilience there and we've triumphed over so many challenges. So I think it starts there. It's looking at your history, taking personal ownership of that and saying, hey, I should be proud of where I came from, my culture. I think many of us, whether you're Black or whether you're you know, from a Middle Eastern country or whether you're from an Irish heritage, there are probably people in your lineage who have sacrificed for you to be able to have the opportunities that you have today. So that is something to be so proud of and that's something to learn about. Take the time to learn about it, understand who your ancestors were, what they did to get here. And I think that gives you that groundedness. So when you are going out in the world and you don't see people that look like you, you don't see your culture represented in the curriculum or in society, then you can say, I know who I am. I've learned about where I came from. And that gives me that sense of, um, that sense of pride and that sense of resilience that no matter what I face, no matter whether it be racism or discrimination, I know who I am. That's so powerful and so true. I think we all obviously need to take the time to learn our uh, our history and our background and ancestry. That's definitely a big part of it. So you started at a young age and your parents obviously instilled it in, in your growth and growing up and your environment. So how did you take what you were learning uh, within your household and school and then apply it to where you are? Because you went through high school and it wasn't until 
your senior year that you saw the representation of that. So what did that teach you? I think perhaps it was something innate. And again, part of uh, the lessons that my parents instilled in me and my mom always used to say, uh, when you were younger, Ariel, I could always tell that you knew that there was more than what you were seeing or more than what was in front of you. So I think I've always had this curiosity and this drive and this ambition to do more and to be more. Um, But I just, especially at a young age, I didn't have that outlet. So I always felt um, not like an other, but I didn't feel like I belonged. It's funny because I said, I knew my history, my heritage, but even within my community, I always felt like I was that ambitious person. That yeah, like an outlier. Work. Yeah, exactly. But I couldn't, there was no one else around me that wanted to do the things that I wanted to do. Um, so it, And in that, at that time, what was it that you wanted to do? Hmm. Well, it's funny because I remember <laughs> being in grade six and I wrote a letter. Uh, we were supposed to write a letter that your parents would open on a special occasion. So whether it was your graduation or your wedding day. So I chose to write a letter to my mom uh, and she was to open it on my graduation day. And I said, hi, mom, just so you know, I will be moving to New York to study fashion design and feel free to come visit me. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was like, I wanted <laughs> Obviously, I didn't think that she would be paying for me to go, didn't have any arrangements, but (laughs) that was the kind of child that I was. I wanted to travel. I wanted to do something big with my life. And I just wanted, I knew that there was so much more out there than what was in my community. Of course, I loved growing up in my community, but there's so much more in this world. Well, I love the independence that that letter just holds. It's like, well, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. And if you want to join me, feel free to. If you don't, that's cool. I'm going to go out there and do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so that's that's that was Ariel and I when I was in grade nine so about 15 years old I had the opportunity to go to France for a month and I stayed with a host family and we traveled around France we visited castle upon castle again I wrote a letter to my mom saying mom when I get home I never want to see any bread or cheese (laughs) but looking back on that experience it was a pivotal moment in my life because I was able to get out of my community and I was able to see the world and I was able to see the different cultures and at the time I was in French immersion so being able to practice my French as well Uh, and I think at that moment I knew the moment that I graduate high school I want to get out of here and not to say again that I was running away from anything but I think there's something to be learned from travel and uh, experiencing other cultures so uh, and I actually did that I ended up going to London after high school I'm a strong believer that the more you invest your time in what's different the more that you learn I guess uh, more about yourself but more about others and where it's all embedded in so when you did that and you went to London how is that at a an experience because take Ariel from HP and put her in London. That's a quite <laughs> contrast. <laughs> it's funny because when I made the decision, a lot of people didn't understand it. They said, you know, we have great schools here. Why would you want to go all the way to the UK to, to study when you, it'd be half the price to stay home. And I think sometimes that can be very dangerous for uh, young people, especially because I do think that there's merit in getting outside of your community. And I I understand that not everyone has that opportunity, but if you can, and if you can make it happen, absolutely go and explore. And that was my mindset. So I'm glad that I made the decision that this is what's best for me. Because, you know, some people always think that they they know what's best for you. But I knew knew in my heart that this is what I wanted to do. So I got there. Uh, Luckily, my mom came with me for the week to get me settled. But other than that, I had no family there. I had no friends. I didn't know anyone. But I loved it. I loved studying in London and It was because in my class, I was sitting around a table, I was studying journalism at the time, and I had someone from Uganda, I had someone from Spain, I had someone from Germany, I had someone from Uruguay, I had someone from Russia. Ah, the diversity. Exactly. So especially studying journalism, you're hearing all of these perspectives and you're hearing how others grew up in their opinion, in their worldview. And it was just not something that I'd experienced growing up here in Nova Scotia at the time. Well, I think it's so important, not just in for everyone to experience that because different perspectives, which you just highlighted, it's so important. But like, especially in journalism, where so often you're reporting on 
perhaps topics or situations or potential um, challenges within communities or reporting on whatever. Uh, There is so many layers to it that perhaps, you know, as a journalist, you wouldn't fully comprehend because, you know, you're not from the community or you haven't experienced whatever the topic might be to a personal level. So it's really hard to conceptualize like the impact of it from a journalist perspective, as well as a just a personal lens, like to really be able to kind of see it from another lens of how it can impact somebody. And that's a life skill as well. I think as a journalist, of course, having other perspectives is key. But at the same time, each individual, each one of us, um, when we're looking at something, we're looking at an issue, we're reading the newspaper. And if we can stop for a second and say, okay, what's my view on this? And what's my view here in North America or as a Canadian or growing up how I did, but what might someone else think who has a different perspective that I do. I think we're quick to jump to conclusions about things and about people. And a lot of our conclusions are based on how we grew up or where we grew up. So having the ability to understand that your perspective and your view isn't the only one is, is crucial. And I think too, that it can be so clouded with um, like influencers, whether it be individuals or even our upbringing, because sometimes to a certain extent shielded, you know, mm-hmm. um, I know for myself speaking, my mother was so overprotective and overbearing where she didn't want me to stray in any sense of, you know, my belief and traditions and culture and all of that, where it was overbearing to me mm-hmm. um, or for me, really, um, that I felt like any opinions or beliefs had to be exactly as hers and nothing else. And so I think it kind of, I mean, I can only speak for myself, like for me exploring that and realizing that her belief and my belief can be similar, but different at the same time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, that, and I think that's so important because whether you're, you know, anyone of, you know, a minority of, um, of different beliefs or even just a person with a completely different perspective than the collective of um, your community, that it's important to kind of understand your stance and not feel like you need to assimilate to what everybody else is doing, which you kind of said just briefly, you know, of people thinking that they knew what was best for you when in reality, you know, you were on your own journey. Exactly. And it takes a long time to get there. And as you said, to stand in your beliefs and what you believe in um, and being open to others. I think that's key to it as well. But that takes time. It takes practice to be firm about what you believe in. It takes a lot of learning on your end as well. But that's certainly something that I encourage everyone to do is to sit down and think, okay, what do I believe? Not what my parents think, not what this person thinks, but what is it that I believe? What is it that I want? Why is it that I believe these things? Why is it that I want these things? And sometimes we just don't take the time to do that. And that's when we can be influenced by other things and other people. Yeah. Well, at what age did you take the time for yourself to do that? Was that before you went to the UK or was it during or when did you take the time for yourself to kind of create your own belief system? Uh, well, I think I had an, an early. I feel like out- it was ongoing. <laughs> yeah, it, it is ongoing. Well, again, I think it started back to growing up and knowing my history. So a lot of my beliefs, especially around making a positive impact, come from my history and my heritage. Uh, but to un- to recognize that, I did have to do some reflection. So it's been a long journey, and I don't bore you with the whole journey. But so I went to London. I ended up. I was supposed to go to an internship, do an internship in LA. Things fell through, and at that point, I was like oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And I ended up making the decision to come back home. And it's just funny how life happens. And there are just so many, you think that it's the end of the road, but there are other things that are waiting for you. So when I came back, I ended up just, you know, wanting to not sit at home. I ended up doing an internship with a social media company and that changed my trajectory. I worked with a small business owner and she trusted me uh, to do my job. I had no experience in social. I was upfront with her. I said, you know, I'm looking for an internship. I have no experience with this, but if you just let me work for you for free, (laughs) 
for three <laughs> months, I will learn all that I need to learn and um, I will help you as best as I can. So she took a chance on me. She taught me everything that she knew. And I ended up working for her for probably about three years. She had this sense of trust in me where, you know, she went on maternity leave. She trusted me with all of her clients and her companies. That gave me this sense of confidence and, hey, look, I know what I'm doing. I want to go back for one second here. So in the three months that you were working with her, three months unpaid, you were learning as much as you can. You were in you were still in school, correct? Yes. So uh, luckily, I at the time, I did another year of journalism when I came to Nova Scotia. And then I ended up switching to the Mount, which was a, probably one of the best decisions because they offer a lot of distance classes, so online courses. So I was actually able to work. I've always done this since uh, going to university. I've worked full time, but now with the online classes, I was able to study online as well. That's amazing. So were you working another job while you were working with her to create that source of income or were you just relying on like the support of your family and friends or? I was. So I was working at a clothing store in the mall in the evenings and on the weekends. So nine to five, I would work with the social media company as an internship and then five to nine and then Saturdays and Sundays, I would actually work at a clothing store in the mall. And that's actually links both parts of my story. So as I said, I ended up working with uh, the social media company for about three years on and off. And I was working at the clothing store and there was this manager at the at the mall and she was a very partisan political person. She was a liberal through and through, I'll just say it. And anyone who worked at her store, she would try and convert them to be a liberal. And I thought, <laughs> this crazy lady. <laughs> um, so there was a provincial election that was coming up and she said, Ariel, you are going to volunteer on a campaign in your community. And I thought, what are you talking about? Is this legal? Can you tell me to do this? <laughs> so, um, but I did. I ended up approaching the candidate in my area and I said, uh, I'm supposed to tell you that I want to volunteer with you. I have no idea what that means. So he was also a young guy as well. It was the first time that he was running. And so he said, yeah, sure. And again, it was another one of those pivotal moments in my life where I found something that propelled me into everything that I'm doing now. Um, so because of my social media experience with a social media company, I was able to help him on his campaign with communications and social media. And I just loved campaigning. It felt like we were one big family trying to work towards a cause, which was helping to get this person elected. I believed in him. I believed in what the party was doing. And I just felt this sense of belonging like I hadn't felt before. Because remember growing up, I didn't feel that sense of... Mm -hmm belonging within a group, but yeah. being, being involved in politics and working towards um, something bigger, it gave me that sense of fulfillment. So I thought, yeah. this wonderful. I can use my social media experience. And then I can also contribute to making a positive impact through politics. Yeah. Well, I, I want to circle back and say, so at any point of, you know, your manager at the time and also reaching out to your candidate within your community, um, did you ever feel a sense of hesitance at all just to be like, I don't know? And I say this mostly because I know, first off, politics and politicians can have a very muddled kind of uh, representation, but also in the sense of your history and your background and just like the sense of perhaps disconnect of what was promise to your ancestors and what your community was like was there any sense of doubt in reaching out because you didn't align at all with politics that is a great question and looking back on it now I don't think that there was um of course we didn't grow up talking about politics at the dinner table I didn't know anyone who was involved in politics but at the time I can't say that there was a hesitation looking back on it I always say that it is unlikely that I ended up in politics because of that history, because I'm a woman and because I'm a black woman and because I'm African Nova Scotian looking at the history and the relationship just with government and politicians, you would think, why the heck would you want to get involved? But at yeah. the time, I don't think there was a hesitation. I'd always read the news and stayed up to date on what was happening in the world, maybe because of my journalism background. But it was for me at the time, I think it was a little self-serving in, say, in saying that I just wanted number one with the social media company to find a job and make sure that I was getting skills to put on my resume. And I think it was the same 
with politics. It was an opportunity for me to get involved as I'd been involved in my community and in my church. And it was just another outlet. I didn't put the two and two together that perhaps there was a historical context to look at when we're thinking about politics and government. But now, now that is a lens that I do look through when I do my work um, today. So post um, the campaign, I mean, you were on the team, so obviously he won. (laughs) (laughs) All because of me, all because of me. (laughs) No, it's a team effort. Yeah, for sure. No, it's true. So um, post campaign, after you you had done that, how did that shift your view on politicians and politics? Again, I, I had such a wonderful candidate and I ended up working for him in his MLA office doing so, doing social media and communications for about a year. And I would say when you do good work, your name spreads. And so I, my focus has always been to be excellent. And when you are excellent, opportunities come your way. I love this quote by Melody Hobson. She's an American investor. And she says, if you focus Focus on the success, nothing will come. If you focus on the work, success will come. And that is so, so accurate. Mm-hmm. So if you're focusing on being successful, you're not. Nothing's going to come. But focus on the work, and you'll have success. So that's what I did. And gradually, people would come to me, and they would say, "Ariel, we heard that you get things done. Can you help on this?" So I helped on another federal election campaign. Then there was an opportunity to work actually get a paid job here in Nova Scotia, working for the Nova Scotia Liberal Caucus office doing a doing communications. So I was then actually hired. So I was working kind of full-time, part-time with a social media company still, working full-time for the Liberal Caucus. And it was just from there that I just continued to do excellent work and contribute where I could and opportunities came that way. Um, So after working at the Liberal Caucus uh, for about a year and a half, I got a call to actually move to Ottawa and work on Parliament Hill to work for the Minister of Social Development. Which I am sure was like at that point, a dream come true, like in sense of doing the work that you have been doing, but doing it on such a bigger scale. Massive scale. I think when you walk up to Parliament Hill, you think, wow, I'm being a part of history. You're involved in creating policies that will affect every Canadian. So I was working on things like the National Poverty Reduction Strategy, the Early Learning and Child Care Framework to provide uh, child care for, you know, everyone who needs it. I mean, we're not there yet, but of course, I think this was an important step to get us there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just felt like I've arrived. If you're working in <laughs> politics, you want to work for a federal cabinet minister, you want to work on Parliament Hill. Yeah. And I don't think that my ancestors could have ever dreamed that I would be there. So that I think being there and being able to do that work and thinking, wow, I really hope that they would be proud of me. That's incredible. So obviously, it was a proud moment for you. So you got there. How was that as an experience? It was I would say overwhelming in a good way and a bad way. I think, uh, as I mentioned, being able to work on policies like poverty and I was able to bring a different lens and we talked about that different worldview. So because I'd grown up in an African Nova Scotian community, I understood that poverty and access to education, especially early education, affects people of color, black people differently. So when I was in these discussions, I was able to bring all of that knowledge and experience to the table. And I always like to think, you know, if I was not raising my hand to say, hey, why don't we look at this group of people? Or why don't we look at African Nova Scotians? Because these issues disproportionately affect them. Would yeah. that have been raised? So yeah. I always tell people when they ask how they can make a difference or get involved, the first thing is, you know, stay informed about issues, um, develop your own opinions, as we talked about previously, but then put your name forward, put your hand up and be involved in those discussions because your voice matters. So that's what that showed me. Um, and I I was a person that always struggled with speaking up in meetings. I would be there. I'm, I, I'm just a shy person, but now I'm, I think I'm getting out of my shell. Um, but I did not like giving impromptu comments in meetings at all. Yeah. But that experience in Ottawa, being around the top bureaucrats or top politicians in the country, you have to be able to contribute. So it really... Yeah force me to think, okay, I need to do better um, in using my voice at these tables. And so at any point, 
I guess, throughout your experience there at Parliament, were you ever so attached to whatever, you know, the issue that was, you know, obviously the poverty topic, were you ever so attached to it that you felt like it kind of clouded or fogged your experience or, you know, just went, uh, I guess, got muddled into your personal life where you felt so um, committed, obviously, to making the impact, but you felt the impacts of it on your mental and physical well-being? I think that is one of the challenges of working in politics particularly, and there are two dynamics that are taking place. Number one, you are working on those issues that are so near and dear to your heart. So whether it is poverty and early learning and childcare, I also within my office had uh, the Indigenous relations file and Indigenous issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I actually had the opportunity to go to the Arctic and work with Inuit youth, no to way. Talk about, yeah, that was in 2015. And we it was 150 of us, we went to the Arctic, and we spoke with Inuit youth about the challenges in their communities and um, what the, the, the solutions that they see for those. So that That's was incredible. something that was also very pressing for me. So you feel like that I'm in this position to make change. I need to do it. So you have this pressure on yourself. So I never felt like I could turn off. So when I would go home, you're constantly thinking about this issue or that issue, you're taking your work home with you, that's for sure. And you understand that it can be life and death for certain people. It can be, you know, whether they eat or don't eat. These policies that we're putting in place, they're so crucially important. Um, And at the same time, uh, politics can often be described as a pressure cooker environment as well, because again, you're dealing with these massive issues. Most of the time, they're time sensitive. You're dealing with personalities, so it can be stressful. And I would say that not necessarily that it was a regret, but looking back on my time in Ottawa. If there was something that I could do better, it would have been taking care of my mental health. Yeah. And so, you know, you were at Parliament and that was obviously a passion for you. So how did that look like when you were working there and coming out of it? So I was there for about a year. I was there for a year. And as I mentioned, I had these large policy files. I'd never done policy before. So it was a massive learning curve for me. I'm so grateful because it it informs everything that I do now. I was also able to be involved in communications in my office as well. So again, using that social media experience that I gained. And then probably towards the end of my time in Ottawa, things started to change. Uh, There was an interesting dynamic, you know, as I mentioned, personalities. And it got to where I couldn't stay. The environment got to where it's either my mental health, I will have an emotional breakdown, Mm -hmm. or, you know, I have to leave. So I think this is, again, where my faith comes in. And I sat and I looked back at my life and I thought I left London and I didn't know what I was going to do. And it worked out. So there came a point where I knew I had to leave Ottawa for a host of reasons. And as difficult as it was, I decided to make that decision. And I ended up coming back home at that time, back to Nova Scotia. And that must have been obviously a tough decision for you. I say obviously, but you must have been so attached to the work that you were doing that it was a tough choice for you. It was because as I as I said, you're thinking, wow, I'm working on Parliament Hill. I'm working on these issues that affect every Canadian. I'm able to make an impact in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you have to recognize the challenges, the toll that it takes on you mentally. And I also missed my community. I missed being involved. I missed being able to have a direct effect on African Nova Scotians and making a positive impact there. So as much as I knew that I would miss my work in Ottawa, I knew that there was more waiting for me at home as well. Not an optimistic mindset. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, and I would say that that's exactly how it worked out. So I ended up yeah. moving back home in the moment, even before I got on a plane from Ottawa, I had a phone call from one of the MLAs here to say, hey, I need your help. So I was <laughs> in her office working and then from working in her office to working with the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission on accessibility training. Yeah. And then from working with the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission to freelancing for a bit for elected officials here doing communications and eventually um, starting a business. I ended up at that time reconnecting with my business partner. Uh, who I met in 2015, then I ended up moving to Ottawa. But then when I moved back, we ended up brainstorming and starting a business together. So I think had I not made that decision to come home, all of these things would not have happened. Yeah, no, it's true for sure. But I have to ask, uh, because I'm just curious about this, at any point during 
you know, during your time up in Parliament and also currently being in politics, like you're still obviously quite involved in it. Did you ever feel like your background or your color ever played a factor in in sense of delivering your message or even just how you were perceived? Um within that environment? Did you ever feel like it played an impact? That's a great question. And that's just my blunt question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I get get that a lot. And I also get, especially when I talk about women in politics, people Mm -hmm. say, what is it like to be a woman in politics? Well, being a woman alone and then being a woman of color, right? (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's exactly that. I, I, I always say, and people always look at me very strangely when I say this, I don't know what it's like to be a woman in politics. And yeah. I'm like, what? What do you mean by that? <laughs> when I walked into rooms, I was not only walking in as a woman, and that's probably what they, that's probably not what they saw first or what people see first. They see she's black. Mm-hmm. She looks like she's probably 16. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not 16. I'm 25 now. Um, but when well, I was, you are going to touch on that. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, Being a petite girl yeah. myself. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I like to think I'm still 16. But um, at the time when I started working in politics, I was 19, 20, 21. So I'd say being black, being say 21 at the time, and uh, then being a woman. So these are all the things that when we walk into rooms, we're not just walking in as women and people judge you based on what they think is most important. And yeah. for me, I found that it was the young, the young bit for me on Parliament Hill, because everyone that I worked with was probably in their late 20s, early 30s and up. So for me, people thought, um, what is this young kid doing here? What does she know? And you kind of felt like you're being treated like a pet of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you when you're able to show, okay, I know what I'm talking about, and I can do the work, then I think people's mindsets change. And so for me, I think it's once people recognize that, hey, she knows what she's talking about, and she knows what she's doing, and she can do the work, then I think people get more comfortable. But uh, it is a reality that you are judged based on whether it be the color of your skin or your gender or your age. Uh, it's a reality. And um, I think within myself, I had to build up that confidence and something that I'm still working on to say, hey, look, you know what you're doing. You belong in these rooms. You need to come prepared to contribute in a meaningful way. And then from there, you know, if, if others want to think what they think, then that's on them. That's not my responsibility to change their mind. Did you ever feel like you had to do then um, like extra work on the side, like outside of office hours to kind of contribute to that? Or was it just like an ongoing, you were just learning yourself. So it would just emulate into your role within the office as to, you know, knowing your roles and responsibilities and showing up and delivering that. Luckily, we had a great We have a fantastic public service and public servants who are very knowledgeable about their subject areas. So anytime that I had a question, I knew I could go to the person within the department leading the file. And of course, they write massive briefing notes with um, copious amounts of background material. So you're constantly learning that way, especially when you're working on policy and uh, a bit of learning myself as well. So if there were any research papers that were accessible online, I would do that reading. But I will say politics is a 24-7 job. Um, you know, yeah. you constantly have your phone or you have your tablet with you. And if issues arise, it could be, you know, 1130 um, at night. Or it could be, I remember on December 24th, just as I was packing for my flight to go home, there was a crisis that arose in in Atlantic Canada. That was also one of my files. And you just have to deal with it, whether it's Christmas Eve or not, you know, if it's um, uh, it was at this point, it was people who had been laid off and we were trying to see if we could help them with their employment benefits. So these are issues that they need to be dealt with right away. And um, mm-hmm. I think those are some of the sacrifices that you make working in politics and that not many people see. But at the same time, it's rewarding work and you get to help people. And so for you, I'm assuming you've just accepted this lifestyle or have you found ways that you can kind of adapt to it? Uh, so as I said, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you can adapt. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, Right, (laughs) Um, but um, once I came back from Ottawa, I had taken the time to reset, and I'd gotten some career coaching. I didn't immediately jump back into politics because I really was, what do I do? What am I doing? There were opportunities coming my way, but I didn't want to continue to say yes, and then again Mm -hmm. be in a position where I wasn't happy or my mental health was suffering. So I took a step back. I got some career coaching, and that helped me to solidify my values. 
understand what I believed in and why I believed in certain things, as well as how I work best. When do I have the opportunity to get into flow? When am I just working away and it doesn't feel like time is passing? So I took the time to do that work uh, with a career coach. It was probably about six sessions. And that, I think, changed the way that I approach my career. Number one, it allowed me to look at my career holistically, so not necessarily the job that I do nine to five or working in politics, because that's not my career. Your career Mm -hmm. can be the boards that you're a part of. It could be um, a side hustle like a business. That is your career. And we need to think of it holistically. And, um, you know, just because you're interested in politics doesn't mean that you have to do politics as a nine to five. Can you do Mm -hmm. it as a volunteer opportunity? Can you do it as a part time? Can you blog about it? So my career coach helped me to think about my career, not just as what I'd like to do nine to five, but how do all of these pieces of who I am and what I'm interested in, how do they fit in, in to my journey and what I'd like to do. So with that, I think I had a real sense of, okay, these are the things that are important to me. I also know that there are other things like dance and reading for leisure that are important. So how do all of these things fit into my life? And I think because I was able to do that work, I now have a better idea of number one, time management, um, mm-hmm. managing my time and how to fit in all the things that I'd like to do. And also make sure so that, important. Yeah. 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 And and just making sure that I'm actually doing those things and that I'm feeling happy. And so that when I am in environment like politics, where it can be all consuming, that I'm able to step out of that bubble and recognize, oh, right, I have so many other things that are important to me and that I'd like to do. And and that's so important because regardless of if you work in politics or if you work in corporate, I think there, whatever role you're in, there's always stressors that are going to be involved and you have to be essentially the the female or the person with the toolbox where you can know when to give yourself the time that you need to kind of um, reset and come back with a clear mindset or uh, to come back with, you know, motivation and inspiration and ways to look at a problem or an issue in a completely different perspective or lens. Exactly. And it's, um, it's almost as if you have to, again, going back to taking the time to do that, because we rush yeah. through life. And if we don't take the time to sit down and say, this is where my time is going, uh, the, you know, there's maybe I can spend more time doing this. Here's where I can, I can find a bit of time and it won't be perfect. And I wholeheartedly no. believe that there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's a myth. <laughs> um, it's, so it's a myth. <laughs> don't, don't spend your time chasing it because it doesn't exist. And I know that's Sometimes my nine to five, uh, I'll say quote unquote nine to five, it's not nine to five, um, (laughs) will be much busier than say my business. So that will take precedence. And then my business will need more of my attention. So maybe I need to scale back on this. Or maybe I'll miss some nights of dance class because I've got to get this done. But then the next month, I'll be able to be more diligent with that. So and it's about not beating up on yourself with it when everything gets done. Honestly, I put I put about four major goals on my to-do list for the week and then four smaller goals each day to try and help accomplish those things. And you know what? I love that. It's It helps to, number one, I'm not going to put 10 things on my list and know that I'm not going to do it. So let me just yeah. be realistic and say, <laughs> I'm going to do the four. And if yeah. I only get one or two of those things done that I can cross off at the end of the day or the week, hey, I'm good. And they just move to the next yeah. week because obviously they weren't as important as they needed to be that particular moment in time. For sure. I really, really like that because it's so realistic and it just brings us back down to like reality because so often we see like everybody is obviously chasing their dreams and chasing what they want to achieve in in this lifetime. And, um, you know, we see the whole grind mentality and the hustle, hustle, hustle. But what we don't see is the back end of that and the burnouts and the crashes and the fulfillment and unhappiness and just feeling so hard and down on yourself, right? And so it comes down to, are you facilitating that environment of you can accomplish, be it those four things or those five things or whatever the list 
uh, the number of things on your list is, but it's facilitating that environment and not, again, we've touched on this throughout this episode tremendously, which I love, but not letting external expectations deter that, Mm -hmm. right? And that takes practice because I still have, you know, family is hard. It's hard to say no to family, you know, especially when it's your parents who have given you so much, but um, being able to have boundaries with people and to say no, or my friends laugh at me because I send them screenshots of my calendar, which is color coded. (laughs) Everything has a color and I'll say, okay, yeah, yeah, we can talk, but we need to schedule some time. Here are the times when I'm free. That is so Ariel, but I I love it. People (laughs) find it ridiculous, but I value my time. I value your time. Let's schedule it. Let's stick to it. And let's make sure that you have time for all the other things that you have to do in your life. And I just, you know, and I have this great group of friends who now know how I operate. And if we only touch base every three or four weeks, that's fine because they know that they have two hours or two hours plus of my time on a dedicated day that I'm only focused on them. Yeah. And well, it's creating that boundary. And I mean, I love it because like you, time is your greatest asset. That's, you know, you can never get that back. So you have to ensure that it's spent wisely and spent in a way that's contributing to yourself ultimately, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It won't be yeah. perfect, but it's worth trying. Mm-hmm. For sure. So you came back from Ottawa, took some time to reset and to evaluate what you wanted to create for yourself. So so what did that look like? Because, you know, now you're a co-founder of Bailey Fragrance. So tell me how that looked like after your career coaching. Yeah. So as I said, I'd been able to identify my values. And part of that was number one, independence. So some having some control over what I'm doing. And I thought business was a natural segue into that. I had some experience doing some communications consulting, but I did want something that was more of like a product. Um, so there was that piece and then the, the impact piece. So community and making a positive impact has always been something that is, uh, is valuable to me as well. So when I met my co-founder, Edwina, um, we were actually introduced by her mom. I used to work with her mom and she always used to say, you need to meet my daughter when she moves here to Nova Scotia. Uh, so we, <laughs> we always like to joke that we met on an adult play date because her mom <laughs> her mom took us for coffee and she sat there while we talked. <laughs> and I thought, okay, oh my gosh. <laughs> you're about 23 years old now and we're sitting here with your mother. Great. <laughs> but she, <laughs> she's wonderful and I thank her for introducing us. Uh, so we just, we knew we wanted to start a business together the moment that we met. We were both equally as ambitious. We were both organized. We both, we always had tons of ideas for projects that we wanted to start. So it took about, I'd say, another year of brainstorming. And we went from everything from selling headphones and mugs to wireless charging. (laughs) And then finally, one day, Edwina said, well, you know, I just bought a perfume. Why don't we do fragrance? And I literally said, yeah, how hard could that be? Um, (laughs) I wonder. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, hard, very hard. Um, So we just ended up diving into it headfirst. You know, I didn't have any experience in the industry. Edwina doesn't either. And so it's back to being informed, learning all we could researching what a top note is compared to a base note and you know what an alcohol-based fragrance is compared to a coconut oil-based fragrances and understanding the ingredients that cause allergic reactions. Um, mm-hmm. So we were doing all that, but at the same time, we knew that we just didn't want it to be selling perfume because that wouldn't be authentic. So we ended yeah. up um, doing some research and finding a charity that works in Uganda that provides life skills and mentoring training to girls uh, nine to 12. Um, so a portion of our proceeds do go to that charity. And I also do girls workshops across Nova Scotia as well. Which is so powerful. I mean, I love that there's a local component and like an international component, because obviously, it's talked about so tremendously, you know, the impact and how important it is to contribute to females specifically within, you know, just giving back education. It's so important. And mm. I, I know this, Partially because, you know, I refer to my upbringing quite often, but being of um, a Middle Eastern uh, background, my mother never had the opportunity to go to school and to educate herself. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was such a privilege to have the education and the resources to do that. And, you know, despite her being older and not being able to get that education, that's still um, a desire for her. And in any way, shape or form, she's trying to contribute to the lost time that she she unfortunately couldn't 
get her own education. So for me, I like I think education is important at any age and it's so fundamental for life. It's true. And uh, I love this quote by Marie Forleo. She says, talent is universal, opportunity is not. So as you mentioned with your mom, um, she, I'm sure she's smart and capable, but based on, you know, where you come from or who you are or the society that you live in, opportunity is not there no matter how talented you are or no matter how hard you work. So that's been uh, a major focus for me. It's understanding that there are many people out there that not because of any fault of their own, that they don't have opportunities or that they don't have an equal or equitable opportunity to actually thrive and to get out of struggle because of barriers that they didn't put up. So how do we make, right? It's whether it's women and girls, whether it's African Nova Scotians, whether it's persons with disabilities, how can we make society more equitable and give them what they need to overcome those barriers? I think it comes down to us, like those people who have that voice, who have that power and who have the platforms to do as much as they can and shine a light on, you know, what perhaps we may not be focusing on or realizing because, you know, it unfortunately is very saturated in what we're consuming. And unless you're seeking out um, information about those issues, then unfortunately, you won't really see it, right? It's not it's not making headlines, that's for sure. That's exactly it. What would you say, how can we as individuals, as a platform, and how can we contribute to continuing the conversation and contributing to um, the ongoing growth for education uh, for people who uh, who have those barriers? I think there are three things, and this is not just for how to make a difference, but for life. And um, it's something that Oprah said that I always write everywhere that I can, whether it's on my mirror in my bathroom or it's on a post-it note in my kitchen. There are three things. It's number one, know who you are and what you want. So back to what we said earlier on, it's about taking the time to know your values and where you stand and what you believe in. So nothing can sway you. Of course, be open to different opinions and changing your opinion, but have an opinion and know for yourself what is right and what you would like to do. Number two would be find a way to serve. So again, it's recognized that, that there are people who have less than you have or people who are struggling and for, for no fault of their own for various reasons. So how can you serve? Like do what you can where you are with what you've got, right? So whether it's um, volunteering or whether it's tutoring or mentoring a group of kids in your community, you know, find a way to serve. And number three is just be excellent, you know, be excellent. And that's putting your all into your work that you're doing, um, staying informed and just excelling, not doing, you know, everything, something, you know, at 50%, do it at 100%. So number one, know who you are and what you want Two, find a way to serve. And then three, be excellent. Gosh, Arielle, you're such a force. I am so happy to have had you on. And I know for anybody listening, they are going to want to find you, connect with you. So where can they find you? Well, thank you, Nor, again, once again, to for giving me this opportunity. I think it's your platform is powerful. It's about helping people to recognize their voice and to, again, dig deeper into their stories. I know I learned every time I talk to you or talk to others, I learned as much about my story <laughs> as I think <laughs> anyone else will. Because uh, it's, again, back to that self-learning and learning what's important and, and what's contributed to the person that you have become. So thank you again for that opportunity. And those who would like to connect with me, certainly feel free to follow me on Instagram. It's Ariel Goff or on LinkedIn as well. And also, if you aren't following or aren't aware of Bailey's Fragrance, go ahead and follow because that is something that's not only incredible as a product, but also incredible in the impact it's making. So for sure, check it out if you haven't already. Thank you so much for listening. Want more? Don't forget to subscribe and to leave a comment below. Stay connected by following us on Instagram at shimi.co. 